tear down this wall. And all of a sudden I heard them shoot at it. Patria o muerte! You're listening to the Interzine Podcast. We're your hosts, Victoria Jones and Melania Pajonka. Today we're talking to Dan Kazide, an associate fellow at Rusi, an expert on chemical and biological weapons. Dan is the author of Toxic, a history of nerve agents, and has worked for the US Secret Service protecting the president and the White House from chemical and biological threats. He's also a contributing writer at Bellingcat, where he debunks myths surrounding chemical weapons. Can you explain again how you first discovered Dan, Melania? Yeah, I I just became very interested in nerve agents after reading more about the Scripple affair. And I came across Dan's book and then I found Dan's hilarious Twitter account where he, <laughs> you know, talks about the biological threats um, residing in pools of Las Vegas. <laughs> So I'm very excited to meet Dan. Um, I think it's going to be a fun conversation. Dan Kazita, thanks for joining us on the very first episode of the Enterzine podcast. Thank you for having me. And it's a pleasure to be here. And I had no idea I was the first guy. <laughs> uh, this is truly an honor. Thank you so much. Um, why are people so afraid of chemical weapons? Why does it spark so much interest and fascination? That's an interesting question, and it's one I've been grappling with for a long time. There's this um, strange feedback loop that people have, and that, you know, why are you afraid of chemical weapons? Because they're so bad. Well, why are they so bad? Well, because they're prohibited. Well, why are they prohibited? Because it's so bad. And there's not actually any sort of fact or logic in that circular th- uh, circular diagram unless you start to unpack it. And you start to unpack it, and the only people that unpack it are professionals like me who've worked in the field for a long time, and you realize, oh, there's there's a lot going on here. Okay, <laughs> so let me try to unpack that for you. First of all, I think everybody should have a healthy fear of any form of armed violence, or unarmed violence for that matter. Violence is a bad thing. And there's lots and lots and lots of different ways that people can get killed. And it's, uh, you know, It's really, really difficult to point to one type of, you know, murder and say, well, shooting somebody in the head is less immoral than poisoning them. And if you say, well, chemical warfare is extra bad because it's immoral, uh, that has the, that indeed incurs the the risk of saying, well, all those other forms are okay. That's good. And that's not true. So where does this come from? And I think it comes from a couple different things. It comes from the fact that actually, if you go deep down in the human psyche, we all have a fear of being poisoned. I think everybody has a fear of that. The earlier first generation chemical weapons were silent silent killers. The If you go back to the first world war, the actual chemical weapon that killed the most people wasn't the ones you think about. You, people th- tend to think about either chlorine or mustard gas, but they forget the dirty middle of the war where the big killer, 90% of the fatalities, actual fatalities from chemical weapons in the First World War was phosgene. And phosgene smelled like newly mown hay. It wasn't unpleasant. wasn't immediately irritating. Didn't didn't make you start gagging and coughing and choking. It would affect you 6, 8, 10, 12 hours later. So it was quite... Ki- 
a dastardly, ungentlemanly weapon of the time, as opposed to looking somebody squarely in the eye with your rifle or your machine gun and shooting them. Okay, so it was given the sort of Edwardian, sort of post-Victorian ethos of, of, of warfare, it was considered an ungentlemanly form of warfare. Now, I'm not, I, I, I view that as kind of a strange affectation looking back at it because uh, lopping somebody's head off with a cavalry saber is gentlemanly. That doesn't mean it's a good thing. So we have this huge First World War, which is in a lot of people's consciousness. Less so now because basically all the veterans are dead. But for most of the last century, we've been living under the shadow of that First World War. And there was a lot of use of chemical weapons in that First World War, but it wasn't terribly effective at winning battles. But it was effective at making the soldiers' lives miserable. Okay? Uh, there were a lot of people exposed to mustard gas towards the end of the war. Very, very few of them died. Few of them ended up in hospital, but a lot of them ended up with annoying, you know, quality of life type injuries, you know, things that scars, the uh, scars in their nether regions. And I don't even want to talk about the gory stuff. Uh, and a lot of people had visible scars from mustard gas blisters. Mm. And a lot of people really just had annoying sort of, imagine just having an annoying rash for two months while you're in the trenches. <laughs> okay, that was part of it. You know, it, chemical warfare wasn't something that won wars. It was an annoying battlefield condition like rats and lice and cold weather and trench foot. If you read Goodbye to All That by Robert Graves, which is one of the great memoirs of the First World War, he relegates chemical warfare to, you know, a battlefield nuisance like, you know, like I said, like, uh, like uh, lice. Uh, and ironically, lice killed more people in the First World War than... than, than uh, than, than chemical weapons did. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that, that is a good fact, fact, fun fact. <laughs> well, here's another fun fact. You know, we talk about it you know, We talk about it as being a modern form of warfare, but if you look at the statistics from the German army in the First World War, the German army lost more people to cavalry saber injuries than it did to, to uh, chemical weapons. Mm. All right. So, but then we have, we have things like, we have, we have literature stemming out of the First World War. I mean, some of it is hilarious. The Good Soldier Schweik is the funniest book ever written. I, I will die on that hill. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's set in the First World War, but it doesn't grapple with chemical warfare. All Quiet on the Western Front, which had numerous cinematic manifestations, did. Uh, war Poetry, will aga uh, you know, Dolce Decorum Est by Wilfred Owen talks about a gas attack. We've got... We got Famous paintings of, you know, there's the famous one by Sargent, uh, Gast, at the Imperial War Museum. So we have images and we have popular culture that make a broader impact on chemical weapons in the popular culture than it actually had in any sort of military context. And that's not unusual, to be honest, okay? There are, there, there are always things that have a bigger impact psychologically, culturally, than, than practically. But... I think this is one of those things. Now, that's probably not the only, those aren't, probably aren't the only reasons why people fear chemical warfare. Uh, we have situations, we have situations where they've been used, and most of, this, most of the uses of chemical war warfare in the post-World War I era are in what I would call disproportionate conflicts. Mm -hmm. So it's 
it's cases like uh, Italy invading Ethiopia in the 1930s, Japan invading China in the 1930s as well, uh, the Iran-Iraq war, the war in Syria, uh, lesser-known instances in Yemen in the late 1960s where these weapons were used as much for their terror value on civilians as they were for military value. Mm. Uh, and so because the use is rare, unlike, say, bombings and shootings and you know airstrikes and all that stuff, it gets more attention when it does happen. So I think all of this is combined. And then because, because it was a form of warfare that was easily banned, and it's not easily banned for the reasons most people think, the first real, real effort at arms control was this, uh, in the chemical sphere was the Geneva Protocol in the mid-1920s. And the nations, of the nations of the world broadly agreed to forswear first use of chemical weapons. And it was an easy thing for people to do because they all looked back at their own track record from the First World War and realized we can't point to any particular battle campaign that was uh, seriously influenced. You know, we can't, you know, there, are very, there are very few battles in the First World War that were won with chemical weapons. And arguably, arguably that, the number is zero. You can actually make the converse argument. You can put, put the case where there, have been, there were situations where chemical warfare actually lost the battle for the user because the wind shifted and it caused friendly casualties. So unlike the other modern inventions, battleships, airplanes, machine guns, barbed wire, tanks, submarines, torpedoes, all this stuff, nobody made any serious effort to ban any of that uh, because that was all viewed as having promise. But chemical weapons was a category of warfare that didn't live up to the uh, claims of the manufacturers and proponents of it. So mainstream military thought largely shelved it, and that meant that diplomats could offer that up as an easy bargaining chip. So it became banned. So if something becomes banned, then it becomes extra bad in the public eye. Mm -hmm. All right. And then we get to the Second World War where... Everybody expects the Second World War to be a reprise of the First World War. For much of the beginning of the Second World War, everybody's expecting any minute now it to switch to chemical warfare. Civilians are issued millions of gas masks. There are Mickey Mouse gas masks for for, uh, for small children. You know, people are given advice on how to you know gas proof their, their their bomb shelters at home and all this stuff. And fortunately, with the, with, the, with the tragic exception of the China-Japan front in the, in, in the East, in, in the most of the World War II conflict, chemical warfare wasn't a thing. But the civil defense preparedness for it was. So that just reinforces this psychological feedback loop that this is a bad thing. Now, I don't know if that explains the, the phenomenon, but it's the best I can do. Mm-hmm. No, I think, I think that... Works fairly well. <laughs> um, another question I had. So your book, Toxic, is mm -hmm. focusing on nerve agents specifically. So I was wondering if you could sort of walk us through what defines a nerve agent, what are the symptoms one might experience, and when did they kind of enter the global consciousness as a threat? Okay. Nerve agents are a category of chemical and I'm not going to use the phrase military-grade nerve agent because that's, that's a pet peeve of mine. 
because some nerve agents actually have civilian uses. Some occur in nature. So in, in a real sense, the original nerve agents were, were certain poisonous substances that occur in things like the calabar bean in West Africa. But as a category of chemical, nerve agents mess with the balance of chemicals that your body needs for the nervous system to operate. The best way I can describe it is the human nervous system has got this big computer in the middle, uh, the brain, and it's connected to the rest of the body by nerve cells. They are literally an electrical network. So... They send, the, the nerve cells send electrical impulses down them, just like wires. Uh, unlike wiring in your house or wiring in a computer, though, when, they, when, when one nerve cell ends and another one begins, there's a little gap. And so the body uses chemicals to send that message across the gap. And messages are going both ways from the body. Okay? Your sensory input you know, is, uh, is, is being sent up the nervous system, if you will, to the brain directions of what to do, you know, are going back down. So there's a complex interplay of chemicals in all those little gaps between the nerve cells. The nerve agents operate by interfering with one of those chemicals, causing another chemical to build up. Okay. So the best way to describe what happens to somebody who's been exposed to nerve agent and being exposed to nerve agent can happen from a military sort of perspective. It can happen from an overdose of certain types of medicines. It can happen from certain types of pesticides. It could also happen if you swallow a few calabar beans in West Africa. Don't eat calabar beans. Uh, they were used for trial by ordeal in, in, in sort of central West Africa. So what happens is you get something called a cholinergic crisis. And so your, your body is sending... Your, your nervous system is processing too many messages. And so if you think all the things that your body needs to send a message to happen, whether it's automatic, like your heartbeat, or it's voluntary, uh, like, you know, opening and closing your, you know, your, 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 your hand. So all of a sudden, all this stuff becomes involuntary and happening a lot, okay? So muscles start spasming glands start working so people start salivating and having tears and things like that you start sweating all these things that you know require some input to happen start to happen now the order in which that happens and the extent to which it's bad for you depends greatly on a, what what the nerve agent is how much and more importantly because this becomes important with things like the scripple case and the navalny poisoning the route of entry into the human body now when did this become important uh, it became important when, in the 1930s, German scientists who were working on pesticides uh, decided to experiment with a new category of chemicals called the organophosphates. All right. And I explain this very well in my book, Toxic. But basically, German scientists are looking into pesticides for purposes of crop protection. And one German scientist, in, in particular, Gerhard Schroeder, comes across a, a chemical that is it's good as a pesticide, but it's too good. It's effectively a pesticide for humans. And that was the first is, or military nerve agent, a chemical called taboon. And so the history goes on from there in that it becomes significant in that this particular class of chemicals 
is a radical improvement. I put that in inverted quotes because, you know, then in, in terms of its ability to incapacitate people immediately, kill people, it's a, and the amount it takes to do it, all these things that are metrics of what makes for an effective chemical weapon, the, the nerve agents are far better in these categories than all the things that had been used during the First World War. And so once the Second World War goes on, because the Germans are part of the same psychological feedback loop I was telling you about, everybody assuming that the, that the war is going to switch to chemical means, you know, they build a secret program, spend lots and lots of money, equivalent of billions and billions of pounds and dollars in today's money, and amass a large arsenal of these uh, nerve agent weapons, and fortunately never use them. Uh, so that... That in turn, I don't know if you want to go here, but that turn becomes really a chemical arms race after the war because the, the political geography of the world changes at the end of the World War, Second World War. You have basically, you have basically a, a relatively democratic you know, West, if you want to call it, in a form of NATO, and you have this communist East, and they're big rivals. Everybody's expecting World War III to happen. Uh, fortunately, it didn't happen. We could argue it's it's playing itself out, and it's played itself out in a lot of secondary fronts, you know, like Korea and Vietnam, and now Ukraine. Uh, but that's that's a bit of historiography that would probably get written a hundred years from now. But there was this because both East and West discovered parts of this German nerve agent industrial empire and military capability that it sparked this arms race in the chemical sphere, just like the arms race that was going on a little bit more visibly uh, in nuclear weapons. So, but the thing is, in the nuclear arms race, it was clear that there was already a, a winner because the U.S. dropped two atomic bombs on, 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 on Japan and Russia's like, holy crap, what was that? Uh, <laughs> we don't have that. Uh, yeah. And so they were very much in the catch-up mode for years and years and years. Uh, what happened was, if you if if I were to use the allegory, say say the German the German nerve agent program is a big blanket, okay, and it's torn in half. Uh, the Western Allies have half the blanket, and the Soviet Union has the other half of the blanket, and neither of them have absolutely everything it would take to actually make an industrial program to mass produce these these nerve agents. The, uh, the problem is both sides think the other side has the whole blanket. Assume that the other side has the whole blanket. And they make a bunch of assumptions about each other's capabilities. In reality, they're both struggling to basically knit together the other half of the blanket, and it takes them years. But this is all going on in fairly dark secrecy. So you end up with this, this massive arms race that goes on in the in the Cold War. Eventually, some countries opt out of it. Britain opt outed, opted out of chemical weapons in 1956, largely because it was too expensive. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's a feature of chemical weapons. It's a very for it's a very expensive category of warfare. There's a sort of myth going around that somehow chemical weapons are cheaper than conventional weapons. And that's uh, uh, that's based on 
what I would consider faulty cocktail napkin kind of mathematics. Anyway, <laughs> uh, you can go down that road if you want. But anyway, uh, I don't know. A very long-ended, a long way. I think I got to the end of your questions there, but uh, please uh, please jump in if there's something I didn't get to on the... Um, no, I think, uh, again, it, it covered it quite well. Um, the description of the uh, chemical and neuro... Um, neural processes behind it took me back to my uh, degree in cognitive neuroscience. <laughs> I mean, we could get into the uh, exact names like acetylcholine and acetylcholinesterase and all that stuff, but that's, uh, I think for the purposes of your audience, I think I did well enough on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I think it was very yeah. um, approachable um, explanation of the topic. Uh, so I actually wanted to move a bit forward on the timeline okay. because I feel like, um, well, for Putin's regime, um, nerve agents became somewhat what of a, a dark um, intimidation PR tool uh, because I know that supposedly um, Russia destroyed its uh, chemical weapons arsenal um, by 2017. Uh, this is what they claim to have done. But as we all know, uh, there has been um, quite prolific cases. <laughs> well, since, yeah. Um, and yeah, and it, what do you think um, is... How, what is what is the use um, okay. of the tool for for Putin's regime? Okay, uh, I would I would say that first of all, poisoning as a method of murder goes back all the way back to ancient Egypt. Okay, and that's a different thing than chemical warfare on the battlefield. So, poisoning one's political opponents is not a new thing in history. All right, and there's a fundamentally different look at it, uh, you have to look at it a lot differently than, than chemical warfare. Uh, partly because, honestly, any idiot can go find something poisonous and slip it to any other idiot's teacup. <laughs> so the, the barrier for entry uh, into the, you know, I'm going to poison my rivals uh, requires literally ancient technology or at best medieval technology as opposed to uh, you know, chemical warfare requires sort of 20th century, 21st century. Uh, it's mostly 20th century. In some cases, late 19th century technology. So, and it requires scale. You don't need much scale to put one one drop of something out of an eyedropper into somebody else's teacup. Okay, mm -hmm. that's the scale. That's the physical scale we're talking about. Uh, as opposed to the scale of things for chemical warfare is literally vast complexes of warehouses and storage bunkers and thousands of people working on the program. So what you have is you have a many, you know, five, six, seven, eight orders of magnitude difference in the amount of time, money, effort, resources that go into the one versus the other. And so, yes, we have clear-cut cases of poisons being used by by the Russian state security services. I should say, and not only just them. We have a we have we have the assassination of of Kim, Kim Jong Yam Nam in the Kuala Lumpur airport. Uh, there have been other people around the world who have died under suspicious circumstances. So, I first of all, I'd say it, it would be a logical fallacy to look at assassination of political enemies and political rivals or you know whatever whatever you want to call it, the targets of these things it, it would be it would be illogical to look at that just in terms of poisoning because uh, because other things happened nemsov was shot okay we have other guys who's uh, uh, there was a guy i can't remember his name was stabbed and ended up you know face down in the river 
you've got people who've died under basically unexplained circumstances. We don't really know. So I think so. The poisonings are a fraction of what goes on. But let me talk you through this because I think the best the best way to look at this would be to talk talk about talk about the Scripple assassination. And I want to put in a bo- uh, plug, not just for my book, but I'd also like to put in a plug for Mark Urban's book, the uh, the uh, Scripple Files. Mm. And I'd like to put a, you know, a if I can, a a, a podcast, a plug for a rival podcast. Not a rival podcast. <laughs> John, go on, go on. <laughs> John Sweet, John Sweetie is uh, really leaning into Vladimir Putin on a, a series of podcasts right now. So John Sweeney's podcast would be would be worth looking at. Also for my cameo appearance there. <laughs> uh, but if you look at the Skripal case, so let's look at the day before this assassination. Where, where do we have? Most people in this country don't know who Sergei Skripal is. Most people, most people in Russia don't know who he is. He's not a household name. I didn't know who the hell he was, <laughs> you know, and I, I view myself as relatively, relatively au courant on these things. And, and so he's not, he's not, a, he's not a famous spy like, say, Kim Philby or Olga Gordievsky, who are household names in a lot of circles. So uh, you got this guy. He's living, he's living in a house under his own name and an easily found address in Salisbury, fine. He's not making any particular effort to hide. He's not making a nuisance of himself, living a quiet life. What he gets up to, I'm not sure. It's <laughs> widely reputed he's doing some consulting work with the intelligence services, but that's what you do as a as a as a as a as a traded spy. You know, he had been officially pardoned by Putin as part of his uh, spy swamp. Uh, the the Unwritten gentlemen's rules of the spy game is that you know when 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 you get swapped out like that they're 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 out of the game you know they're not fair targets anymore. So, what's the deal? This is this guy really 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 high up on the on the on some sort of notional hit list in in, in the Kremlin? I'd argue this guy is well down the second page, okay, of, 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 the, of the people that the Kremlin really would like to see got rid of. So it begs the question, why? All right, so, but also if they really wanted to get rid of him, surely, surely it's easier to put on a postal uniform, get an empty box, ring the bell, and just shoot him in the head. I mean, I don't mean to be blunt like that, or there's a million and one reasons why a guy who's in his 60s, he's a bit overweight, doesn't eat the healthiest diet reputedly, drinks a lot reputedly, smokes reputedly. I think he may have been diabetic. These are all things I just, I never met the guy. These are all things I've heard. So if this guy just falls over dead on the couch one day, is there going to be a huge amount of scrutiny? No. If, you know, if he gets run over by a car one day, well, there'll be a little bit of scrutiny into a traffic accident, but hey, you know, so... It leads me to the conclusion something like Novichok is meant to send a message. The method is often the message, okay? And I don't, and I don't even think that this particular message needed Scribble to end up dead because I think he's just being a symbol, okay? Uh, my own theory is that nerve agents, particularly a nerve agent, so uniquely, un- uniquely you know, pointing right at the Russians because uh, <laughs> – 
you can find documents from 1988, and if you wanted to mix up a cocktail of chemicals that exactly matched what was in the U what was left of the U.S. chemical stockpile, if you wanted to fake a footprint of U.S. sarin, you could do it if you were a lab. You could do it. Uh, and try to blame somebody else on it. There wasn't any effort to do that. You know, here we go. It was just like the polonium in Litvinenko. And there's really very few commercial sources of polonium, okay? <laughs> and there was literally a trail, I mean, literally a trail of, of polonium on, on things like airline seats uh, <laughs> all the way back to Russia. So, uh, so in the... In both the Litvinenko and the Skripal situation, the method is the message. You know, what, what that message is, you know, is it to, you know, like you could argue it a couple of different things. Is it to put the fear of fear into possible future defectors? Oh. I see that because reputedly uh, Putin is, does not like, dis nobody likes disloyalty, but he really hates disloyalty in his inner, inner, inner coterie. So occasionally, does something like this have to happen to discourage future disloyalty? Right, possibly. Does this have to? Does it, does he need to send a message to Russians in the West that to behave themselves? You know, uh, you know, a lot of Russians here in London, a lot of Russians here in the UK, a lot of Russians in the West. Rather, a lot of them are not very pro-Putin. Okay. There's probably anti-Putin plots and schemes going on, and probably involving lots of money, probably involving people here. So, do you? If I if I was Putin, I would probably want to inject a lot of fear into that uh, situation. I mean, it's even possible that he was trying to provoke an anti-Russian backlash. And I give actually credit to to Theresa May for not quite falling to that because actually he's just some sort of you know, administrative financial pogrom against Russian oligarchs, while it would have been interesting, uh, probably would have flushed a lot of them out of the UK, probably would have flushed that money to even even dodgier financial, you know, financial uh, destinations, uh, and would have might have served Putin's purpose. I don't know. But so all of these things, all these things require a method uh, that points towards the Kremlin as opposed to just falling over dead, you know. So does that answer your question? Mm -hmm. okay. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Could you tell us a bit about the use of chemical weapons by governments like Assad's regime in Syria and also non-state actors like terrorist groups? Okay. Uh, there is... There's, Actually, not that much. Well, I'll take the, I'll take the latter uh, part of it first. There's not much history in the non-state actor space. Uh, some of that some of that has to do with the fact that actually the acquisition and development of chemical weapons is expensive and different than conventional means of violence, and non-state actors have almost by definition fewer resources than state actors. So you have relatively few instances of, of, of groups resorting to, to chemical terrorism. Uh, one of the great exceptions of this, and everybody will point it out to me, uh, oh, well, but what about the Japanese? Okay, so you had the Alm cult in Japan. And it was for, in terms of non-state actors, it was a very large group. If you think about it, it was effectively a terrorist group that had 
that sat as sort of the apex of a pyramid, and that pyramid had far less nefarious purposes at the bottom of the pyramid. But either the Alm cult was effectively this pyramid scheme that funneled money up into an extremist group at the top of the pyramid. And they had something like 100,000 members at the base of that pyramid who were giving a lot of their money to this cult. And the cult actually ran businesses and things like that. So it, so the amount of money, the amount of effort that, that it devoted to the acquisition and you know, development of chemical weapons was literally the equivalent of what a small state-level program was. So it was a non, non-state activity, but they, they organized themselves as they were a state. They, they're different departments. They called them ministries. Uh, they were in their own minds, their own government. So it's, I'd say try to, to try to apply the, the, uh, the methodology of terrorism groups and call them a non-state actor. Well, technically they aren't a state. In their own mind they were, and they were big enough to be one. I calculated and looked into it, and I was one of the few Americans to really, because I had to really dig into it in the mid-90s. I would say that if you were to compare, if you were to compare the size of their chemical weapons program, it wasn't that different than the size of the chemical weapons program that the South Africans had ran. Okay, Whoa. all right, and it, and it wasn't in terms of resources, number of people, what the education of those people were. It was comparable to the size of the chemical weapons program in the 1980s in Tito's Yugoslavia. Okay, so, uh, and they had several instances of chemical terrorism, some of which, some of which is stuff we don't really think about because it was a, a bunch of one-off assassinations that they did using, uh, using chemical agents and two large chemical attacks using sarin. One in Matsumoto in 1994, which nobody talks about because it didn't get much traction in the West. It was quite a mysterious incident at the time. And then, of course, the Tokyo subway incident in 1995. And these these were done out of direct motives. Uh, uh, they, didn't, they didn't view this as attacks on civilians. They viewed it in a chemical warfare mentality. The Matsumoto attack is they were trying to basically assassinate the judges who were going to rule on a, uh, a, a court case against them. And the Tokyo subway attack, they had gotten advance wind, advance notice of police raids on, on their compounds. So they were attacking the subway stations and subway lines that were around the Japanese National Police Agency headquarters. So their idea is they were literally taking out their enemy. So they were looking at this in a, in a, in a, in a warfare mentality. Okay, so that's that's one way of looking at it. Now, if you look at if you look at this, if you look at some of the other conflicts, I would go further, further, further back. I go back to the, I would I would go back to the Italian invasion of Ethiopia. In in the 1930s, there was a situation where basically racist ideology, racist rhetoric, uh, and the Italian fascists literally viewed their enemy as subhumans. And so they were viewing their enemy literally as vermin and pests. And some of the rhetoric at the time is like, well, we're just fumigating them. These things are like pesticides. And so there, 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 there is a, a dehumanization aspect to that. Okay. Uh, that same thing, same thing happened in when the Japanese were attacking the Chinese. Now, in both of those situations, there's also, there is a military aspect in that, and that 
the Italians were, were actually quite outnumbered by the Ethiopians. They were technically advanced, but outnumbered. Okay. Same thing with J uh, Japan. Japan was better armed, better organized, but greatly outnumbered by their Chinese enemy. Uh, and then you look at the Iran-Iraq war. The, the, Iraq, uh, the Iraqi army was outnumbered by the Iranians. So in all these cases, you have this, you have this idea that somehow chemical warfare is a force multiplier. Okay, we're going to use this to make up for differences in in uh, in, in 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 manpower. With some effectiveness, I'd say, possibly hard to say. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard to actually measure how how well that logic pointed out. Okay. Now, what you what you get what you get is a weird calculated logic, uh, and when these when these uses bleed from the battlefield into atrocities against civilians, and I'd say in all of those cases. We're we're not talking about we're not ta we're not talking about armies and political leadership that saw a clear delineation between between uniform combatant and enemy. They saw basically everybody who was Chinese as an enemy. They saw everybody who was Ethiopian as an enemy. Uh, you know, the the uh, the 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 terrible atrocities against the Kurdish people in the Iran-Iraq war were partly as a result of the fact that this poor Kurdish nation is stuck between Iran and Iraq. And both, both Iran and Iraq at various points very, very cynically manipulated that population to try to get it fight for one side or the other. And to this day, there's still rather, a lot, there's not a lot of unity necessarily in that, in that, in, in, in those, uh, in, in that Kurdish-speaking region of the world. And there's a lot of animosities that go back to that conflict where both sides were cynically manipulating the, 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 the Kurds. And so there becomes this idea that, you know, well, these, these people are fighting for the other side. We must terribly, terribly punish them. Okay. And so by, by that context, I'm, you know, in, in the cold, rational, rather wicked and evil you know, context here, the chemical warfare is used as a punishment for being on the wrong side. And that, and that plays out in Syria, okay? Uh, I'd say trying to look at the use of a handful of sarin incidents, a rather larger number, several hundred chlorine incidents, it would be, it would be incorrect to look at that as, you know, in a, in a, in a silo, in isolation. In reality, what that is, is part of a, I think they call it a draining the sea approach, basically. It's, it should be viewed in the context along with bombing marketplaces, bombing mosques, bombing hospitals, bombing bakeries. Uh, it should be viewed in the context of a widespread campaign to make it difficult or impossible or miserable to live in areas that aren't under regime control. So it becomes this, it's, it's a tool of depopulation. It's not, meant, it's not meant to necessarily kill a lot of people. It's all meant as part of this broader campaign to make it miserable to live in these, in these areas that aren't under the Assad regime. That's what it is, okay? Uh, and so, you know, it is a war crime. It's a crime against humanity. Uh, you know, attacks on civilians are, attacks on civilians are war crimes. And so, 
to try to differentiate, say, an attack on a civilian with, with a chemical weapon is somehow more of a war crime than dropping a bomb on a hospital. That's, you know, that gets into a uh, We're trying to create artificial hierarchies of evil when it's all evil. Okay. Uh, but people do pay attention. We're back to that very first discussion. All of a sudden, you know, nobody, we've got compassion fatigue when it comes to, oh, yeah, another bombing in the Middle East. Oh, isn't that bad? Oh, my God, sarin gas. Um, it's different. Uh, but it's all bad. You know, and I'm just saying we we in this in the case of you know Saddam Hussein, the Assad regime, Mussolini, uh, militaristic Japan in the 1930s 1940s, we are we are dealing with we are we are dealing with we are dealing with authoritarian and totalitarian regimes that do not make the same differentiations between who is a combatant and therefore a legitimate target and civilians who are not legitimate targets. Does that, does that cover that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so I actually wanted to ask something um, more practical when it um, okay. comes to the proliferation of the arms, because you mentioned these um, kind of individual countries, um, chemical weapons programs. But when it comes to specifically nerve agents, was there any, how how did they end up in Syria? Uh, or did they produce it on their own? Or um, okay. was it somehow introduced to them okay. by a, uh, an external country? All right. I could have brought the family tree diagram with me. I have drawn, <laughs> I have drawn a family tree of nerve agents. Okay. And you can, you can track and trace gradually the transfer of knowledge and capability and technology from country to country to country. And it gets a little bit, you know, mixed up in that. So if you look from military nerve agents, the original, the base of the tree, if you will, is all this work that the Germans did. Okay. Mm -hmm. And we're back to that, you know, my my analogy of the blanket being torn in half. (laughs) All right. Some of that. So basically off of that tree comes at first, three different branches. One branch is one branch is the Soviet Union. It's a big branch, big effort. Another branch is the American effort, and I'd say there are two smaller branches: a British effort and a French effort. Okay, so these these uh, and so three of those: uh, the, the British and the American effort kind of work a little bit together as cooperation. The French effort does its own thing. The Soviet effort does its own thing. Uh, if you get later on in the 1950s, you get this other interesting little branch that starts to come out. That's Yugoslavia. Oh. Ah. <laughs> okay. Which is, yeah, Yugoslavia under Marshal Tito was neither east nor west in the, uh, in, in the, in the Cold War. Uh, sort of played both sides of that. Okay. But then you start from the 1950s onward. You start getting uh, you start getting countries getting their independence in places like the Middle East and Africa and the uh, and all that. So you start getting uh, you start getting other branches coming out. These these but where do these branches come out of? So really, the first big chemical weapons program in the Middle East is this branch in Egypt. Oh wow! 
Okay, the branch in Egypt uh, uh, comes from a couple of mixed roots, but largely is Soviet root. Okay, this is under Nasser. Uh, the The Egyptians are convinced. The Egyptians are convinced that they need it. Uh, they, they need it to be able to compete with it, with Israel. Uh, the Egyptians develop a chemical weapons program. Now, we forget this thing called the United Arab Republic. There's probably a book at Hearst on the United Arab Republic. I'm not sure. I'm sure there is. Uh, <laughs> Michael Dwyer, if you're listening, uh, commission a book on the United Arab Republic because it's interesting. <laughs> because when I was a kid, I had this globe and it wasn't Egypt on it and there wasn't Syria. They were both called the United Arab Republic because Egypt and Syria were the same country for about a six or eight year period. I, I, I'm not, you know. The, so the Syrian program grew off of the Egyptian program. But then because Syria was very much a ally, some people would even argue even a client state of the Soviet Union in the, you get to the 70s and 1980s, uh, very heavily supported militarily by the Soviet Union. It was getting some support for its chemical weapons program from the Soviet Union and some backdoor stuff from that Yugoslav program. Because remember, uh, maybe you don't remember, you're probably not old enough to remember, uh, Tito was part of this thing called the non-aligned movement. And he was, he was providing military training to places like Indonesia and India and Iran under the Shah, uh, but also to Egyptians and to Syrians. So there's a little bit of a whiff of the old Yugoslavian chemical program in there. So that's this, this, the, the, the Syrian chemical program, which made its own chemical agents, based largely on expertise that came out of the Egyptian stuff with a little bit of Soviet and Yugoslav stuff in. So it's a hybrid program. Hmm. Interesting, okay. interesting. Yes, there you go. Great. Um, Victoria, because I actually have one more question, but maybe do, did you want to ask something, Victoria? You can go first because mine's a wrap-up question. Okay, yeah, because I still wanted to revisit that um, Russia question. Okay. Um, because obviously, you know, as you said, that Theresa May didn't really react in in particularly dramatic way to scripple poisoning. They took it quite, um, you know, in diplomatic terms, mightily they expelled some diplomats. Uh, and they really struggled to pinpoint um, who was, resp I mean, obviously the, the links to Russia are obvious, but they really mm. struggled to um, find who was responsible for it. And obviously that were the famous Bellingcat investigation comes in. Yes, yes. So that, uh, that's what I wanted to ask the, about the kind of broader, um, you know, role of social media and accountability. Ah, yeah. Okay. All right. Social media, um, this whole new, it's not a new field, open source intelligence. All right. What's new about it is the fact that there's grassroots efforts to do it, like Bellingcat. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, I was doing Bellingcat stuff with Elliot Higgins before Bellingcat was even Bellingcat. <laughs> I first met Elliot Higgins when he and I were both nobodies, and we were. It was <laughs> it was uh, 2013, and we were sitting at the British Library. Working, I was drawing him sketches of chemical weapons on a piece of paper. Oh wow! Yeah. So, in all in all, all fairness, I am an occasional Bellingcat contributor. I haven't done much lately, but I've got over 20 Bellingcat posts to my to my to my name. Uh, and I consider myself a friend of that whole, you know, Bellingcat collective. Uh, they've gone and done good things. Um, but 
broadly speaking, open source intelligence isn't new, uh, but social media has has greatly, greatly multiplied what you can do in open source intelligence. Open source intelligence, when I was when when I was uh, when I was a young intern in the Pentagon in 1990, open source intelligence was basically keen master's degree students who are working on you know, research fellowships for like the State Department, going off and reading foreign foreign magazines and, and newspapers, okay, <laughs> and writing up summaries of that stuff. And that, that, there was a lot of value in that. And there still is value in that sort of thing. But, all right, so open source intelligence has got, and social media, all right, I'm going to take this in two parts. First of all, Social media gives a lot of ways for open source intelligence to figure out and document atrocities, war crimes, assassinations, criminal acts, all that, in a way that if funneled and exploited properly, could be an adjunct to very good things. So, for example, you know, really blowing the lid off of uh, of the Skripal killers, you know. Uh, managing to do things that the police and counterintelligence services who are paid good money to do it, uh, you know, sort of doing their job for them in some cases, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, also providing a level of scrutiny to uh, provide, you know, pr- yeah, providing levels of scrutiny in, in cases and situations where there, where there aren't authorities to, 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 or the authorities are corrupt or not, or it's the authorities doing the problem. So... There's huge, huge scope for shining a light of truth into areas of darkness, okay? Uh, but I also say that that's, that's sort of a yin and yang sort of situation because social media also provides a huge, huge form for obfuscation and confusion. And we see that, we see that with, for example, the Scripple affair, that huge amounts of conspiracy theories and denialism and alternative explanations ranging from the absolutely sublime to the ridiculous. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I, I'm actually, one of my projects is I am cataloging the disinformation about the Scripple affair for a book chapter in an upcoming book. Uh, there will be the Rutledge uh, handbook of disinformation studies, and there will be a chapter on it on the Sergei Skripal affair and Russian state disinformation oh. by yours truly, eventually. <laughs> um, but so social media has no as as a phenomena has no modulation to it. It's like a huge pipeline, and anybody can use that pipeline for good or bad. And so, what open source intelligence is, if it works properly is trying to siphon off the right bit out of that pipeline to do something useful with that information. And what we're seeing is we're seeing both very good efforts like like uh, Bellingcat, but we also see rather amateurish efforts too. I mean, the, uh, you know, my, any, anybody could call themselves an Ozint analyst. There's, <laughs> n- there's, no, uh, there's, there's no credential for it. There's no certification for it. And... Some of these, some of these kids are gonna do damage to themselves and others. Okay, uh, I'm gonna say right now, if you're sitting in your mother's basement, looking at a, you're looking at, spending 19 hours a day looking at images of people mutilated in uh, in in Ukraine, it's not good for you. Okay, 
there's a time and a place to look at that stuff. But, you know, trying to look at that stuff all the time uh, is going to is gonna do some damage to your psyche. So if I, if if one of you out there is is listening, uh, go to the Bellingcat page where there is a link to resources on this stuff because actually you need you need to put this in context. And and there's a lot there's a lot of frankly well-meaning but also silly you know amateurism going on in in in, in the Ozint space. Some of it gets lucky and springs on something great. Some of it is like. I mean, I see it all the time. Like, oh, yeah, look, mustard gas. No, it's a big orange cloud. Yeah, mustard gas. No, it's a big orange <laughs> cloud. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, this is my Twitter feed every damn day. Okay. Uh, you know, and so, yeah, no, there hasn't been any chemical warfare in the Ukraine crisis so far, and I don't think there will be. But, you know, there's a lot of people looking for it. And the harder you look for something, uh, you know, some of these people are going to find it, whether it's there or not. <laughs> uh, so some of y'all out there need to chill out a bit. <laughs> okay. Um, I guess just one final question, Dan, is what are you most concerned about when it comes to the future, either in terms of chemical warfare or disinformation? Um, that's a good question. What do I care about? What am I worried about? On one level, I'm worried. I'm I'm worried about technical advances making it easier for people to engage in chemical warfare. I'm worried about something that changes the equation. Okay, right, so far the equation is has been on our side. The equation is then that chemical weapons hasn't been worth using. Okay, for the most part. Uh, we, the reason why we even talk about it is it was largely by exception as opposed to the rule. We you know we. We've talked about a hand, relative handful of incidents out of the hundreds of thousands of things we could be talking about. So, you know, I worry about that. As far as the, the, the second part of your question, disinformation, misinformation, which is a, a disinformation is bad information being sent, you know, maliciously, deliberately. Misinformation is just being wrong. Uh, quite innocently in some cases. And there's also a third category, malinformation. This is correct information, but being used for malicious purposes, you know, or taken out of context or, you know, what have you. Uh, you know, I, I, I worry that people just give up looking for the truth because more often than not, disinformation, it's a lot of disinformation campaigns aren't designed to actually convince you of the correctness of the theory. I don't think anybody in Moscow sits down and says, yeah, we're going to put three stories and say that Sergei Skripal was a drug addict and died of fentanyl overdose. I don't think anybody ever said, uh, yeah, we really expect people to believe that. Uh, you know, what the purpose behind those stories is to say in the context of 10, 11, 12, 13 other explanations – ranging from Fugu Fish to the Czech Intelligence Service to, you know, Theresa May did it herself to it was a drone <laughs> to it was a leak from uh, Port and Down. The, uh, the, the broader says is, is to get the average person to say, oh, well, what a mess. I'll ne we'll never know what happens, so people give up trying. So I worry about people giving up. You know, I, and I worry about that in a broader context than the stuff we talk about. I worry about people just giving up fighting COVID. I worry about I, – I, I'm sick to my stomach of people in America giving up on 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 oh what to do about uh, gun violence. I'm I'm just you know, 
you know, Jesus, man. America, you put men on the moon. You could solve this problem, too. You've just gotten lazy. America's gotten lazy. And say, you know, uh, you know, Britain got lazy, you know, in, in trying to trying to fight COVID. You know, every time we came within a couple of weeks of kicking this beast, oh, let's have another party, number 10. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I, I you know, I, I, I worry about. I worry about people getting too lazy to confront the problems that actually are so, are solvable. Okay, uh, now just because they're solvable doesn't mean they're easy. I mean, but society has fixed hard problems before, and we shouldn't get we shouldn't get into the condition where we only solve problems when you know, we're effectively being coerced into it and you know a gun to our head. You know that's the point. Problems are always harder to solve at that point. You know we got to be better at solving problems. So you just touched on a you know, on a, you know, strange phenomenon here by mentioning the disinformation. And like I said, the, the great hazard disinformation is people giving up. And I don't want people to give up. So if you're out there, don't give up. <laughs> great. I think that's a, a great way to end our conversation okay. <laughs> on a hopeful note. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you very much again for meeting us today. Uh, it was lovely talking to you. Excellent. <laughs> You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Interzine and you can find us on Twitter at Interzine Mag. And subscribe to the Interzine podcast, available on your favorite streaming platforms. <laughs>